I will pray for our time together. And at the end of it, I'll ask you to join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. We'll be praying the ESV translation. What we just sang, Father, is, is what we want to do. It's what we've been called to do. It is, as has been famously said, it is the chief end of man to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And what we just sang, those, those songs, was a foretaste of that. Be thou, O Lord, magnified, adored, worshipped among us this morning. We come before your word to hear you speak to us. And we believe, Lord, that you do speak through your word by the power of your spirit as we read it, as we hear it, as it is proclaimed, and that you have ordained this proclamation, this preaching of your word to change us to sanctify us. And so we pray you would do that in us this morning, Lord. We need your word more than we need bread, more than we need water, more than we need life itself. So feed us, your people, this morning. And now we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Well, since the middle of February, we've been studying these words that we just prayed together, these words that we know and are familiar with as the Lord's Prayer. We've taken it portion by portion, phrase by phrase, trying to unpack the fullness that is in these words. And we've seen how full these words are, haven't we? How every word, every phrase, every combination of words is laden with meaning for us and has implications for our own prayer lives. In the very first Words, we learn to address the God who is thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We learn to address him as our Father for Jesus' sake. Then in the first three petitions, we learn how to prioritize our prayers as God would have us. By aligning ourselves with his priorities, we pray, Hallowed be your name, asking that God would enable us and enable others to exalt him and revere and honor him in all things. We pray, thy kingdom come, asking that God's kingdom of grace would advance in the world, that he will continue to save souls, delivering them from the power of sin and of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we pray for the hastening of that final consummated kingdom of glory away from the presence of sin. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, asking that he will enable us to know, obey, and submit ourselves to his revealed will as perfectly as the angels do in heaven. Then we come to the last three petitions where we ask for the things that we need from our dear Father in heaven. We pray for provision of our daily needs when we say, give us this day our daily bread. 
provision of our needs. We pray for pardon of our daily sins. When we say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then finally, we saw last week that we recognize we're in danger of temptation and evil every single day. And so we pray for his divine protection when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is certainly the model prayer in so many ways that Jesus has taught us. Jesus gave it to his disciples to teach them how to pray. And so when it comes to prayer, it is, we, we need help, don't we? We need help. Anyone who has tried to pray knows we need help. So when we come to this prayer, we should memorize it. We should take it as Jesus' words for us. We should teach it to our children. And we should seek to pattern our prayers after the things that it teaches us about prayer. Now, depending on how you grew up, ending the prayer where we just ended it when we prayed it together, in the, as the way the ESV does, might sound a bit strange to you, a bit abrupt and sudden. Many of you, us, many of us are, depending on your upbringing, different Christian traditions have said it different ways. But many of you are used to praying at the end, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you're using the ESV or just about any other modern translation, if that's in there at all, it's relegated to a footnote. You might see a little number or a letter by the end of that and say, some manuscripts say this. If you're using the King James Version or the New King James Version, you do have those words in the actual text. So what is going on here? Well, the situation is actually pretty complicated, and I'm not going to even be able to scratch the surface of the details of it, nor do I think you want me to this morning. But the long and the short of it is this. The manuscript evidence that we have makes it pretty clear that these words were not in the original prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. However, it is very likely that Christians have been praying this since the very beginning. That's as, about as succinct as I could put it. And the reason for that, that's because in Jewish culture at the time, it was very abnormal to end your prayers without some kind of doxology or word of praise, like we would call this at the end of this prayer. It would, it, it would have been, it, it, uh, yeah, like I said, basically unheard of. And so it's likely, even though I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't die on this hill, it's not inspired, but, but it is likely that Jesus expected his disciples, because that was the norm of the day, to put their own doxology on the end of it. We can't, can't say that for sure. So what do we do? Should we pray this when we pray the Lord's Prayer, or should we not? Some have argued no, since we certainly would not want to add to the words of Scripture, and we can all recognize and appreciate that desire. But respectfully, I would disagree. Because what we're adding here is not some trite, superficial, meaningless, unbiblical phrase. Rather, it is very biblical, and it actually appears verbatim in other places in Scripture. So therefore, I would argue that we should use it. The content of this doxology is thoroughly biblical, as we'll see in just a little bit. Praying doxologies is very biblical. If you look, if you read Paul's letters, I don't think there's a single one that doesn't have a doxology somewhere in it, where he breaks out in praise. We think of Romans 11, after he's gotten done unpacking all this doctrine, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. It's the biblical pattern, and it's helpful to end our prayers on a note of praise doxology. Plus, when we add to that, that Jesus didn't give us this as our only prayer to pray. The scriptures is full of model prayers. And these are not somehow magical words as if this is all we are, we're supposed to pray these and these only. 
And so it's fully appropriate to use this doxology, even while we acknowledge that it was not in, most likely in the original text here in Matthew 6. But of course, we honor those who choose differently. So this morning, we're going to have a little bit of an odd sermon because we're going to, we're, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is the impetus for this sermon, but we are not going to study that in particular because that is not there. Instead, we're going to turn to 1 Chronicles 29, where this same phrase is used by a different person, King David, and he has a few other words that he adds to it. But kingdom, power, and glory are all in it. So I think I said earlier that it's verbatim. It's not verbatim, because that would mean exactly word for word, but it's very similar. So 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in chapter, or in verse 10, rather, will be our scripture reading, and specifically verse 11, but I'm going to read verses 10 to 13. Therefore... David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now just a little bit of background on this passage as we come into it at the very end of the book of First Chronicles. These words are prayed by King David the man after God's heart, at the height, sort of the pinnacle of his reign. So at this point in David's reign, God has basically given him victory over almost all his enemies. The kingdom of Israel is, for one of the first times in its history, pretty secure. It's enjoying some times of peace and rest and prosperity. And in that prosperity, what David realizes, and actually he realizes this a little bit before, and I'll have you, I'll, I'll turn there in a moment, but a, while, a little while before that, as David saw God establishing the kingdom, he realized, I have this great house I'm living in, but God, God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, is still in the tent, the tabernacle. And he was convicted about that. I'm flipping back a few chapters to chapter 17. And this is what it says. It says, now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. So David wanted to build God a house. But we read on and find that God uses that good desire that David had to teach him something. He says to David later on in that chapter, he says, it is not you who will build me a house. The Lord will build you a house. And of course he was referring to he would establish the house of David, referring to the kingdom of David, the, the lineage of David as kings over Israel. And as a symbol of the fact that it is God's work in Israel, not David's, 
God tells David, actually, it's going to be your son who builds me a house. You're not going to. And we learn in another place that that was because of all of the, the blood that was on David's hands. God said, you're, essentially, he was not fit to build him a house because of all of, the, all of the killing that he had had to do. So your son will build me a house. Well, now, in chapter 29, that time has almost come. David is, knows his time is left is short. And he's making preparations for his son Solomon to build the temple. He wants to make sure that his son's going to build the temple. And so before he dies, he does everything short of building it. He assembles all of the materials needed. He gives of his own wealth to the temple. And his example, what we read, inspires all the people of Israel who then give of their own wealth. And so what we have is this picture of all the people of Israel united in pouring their wealth towards Jerusalem for the building of a house for God. Glorious picture. And now here in verses 10 through 19, we find David's prayer of gratitude to God for this. In this joyful moment, instead of taking any credit for himself, as most kings would, David turns it all back to the Lord. He remembers God's word to him back from chapter 17, that it was God who was going to build David's house. And therefore he knows from whom all of these things come. Even though while all the people are worshiping and giving freely of their possessions, it is the Lord's work, not his, not theirs. All praise and glory goes to the Lord. He remembers that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So from David's prayer and the closing of the Lord's prayer that we derive from David's prayer, we learn this. We are to praise God in our prayers by ascribing to him everything that he is worthy of. We'll say that again. We are to praise God in our prayers by ascribing to him everything that he is worthy of. So the first thing that I want to note from David's prayer here is that we are to praise God in our prayers. Our prayers are not just to be a list of requests, but we are to praise him. Or the word that scripture actually uses here in verse 10 is we are to bless the Lord in our prayers. That word bless simply means to speak a good word about. And when we are blessing the Lord, it means speaking a good word about his kindness and his generosity to us. Speaking a good word. Let's read verse 10 again. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. So our, our impulse, brothers and sisters, our impulse in prayers should be to speak good words about God. It's all too easy for our prayers just to simply be a rattling off of requests or a venting mechanism. I don't know if you ever find yourself falling into that trap, but and don't get me wrong, God wants to hear you unburden yourself to him. He does. He wants you to pour your heart out before him and to roll your burdens off onto him. But in faith, in faith that remembers who he is in the midst of our complaints and gives him due praise for that, blesses him for it. Remember, it was Job, the man from whom everything was taken, who said this when everything was taken. Remember, we're told he worshiped. That was his response. He fell on the ground on his face and he worshiped. And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now listen, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
It's all too easy when life is difficult for us to become short-sighted and forget who God is. But we stir up our own faith as well as the faith of others when we bless God, even in difficult circumstances, when we choose to speak a good word about him in our prayers. The psalmist reminds us of this as well in Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, let me ask you something. When are you most likely to forget his benefits? When things are going well? Well, maybe, and that's a danger too. But isn't it true that it's equally as dangerous? We might forget his benefits when things are going poorly. So we're to bless the Lord in all circumstances and remember that it all comes from him. And then notice too in verse 10, he says, bless the Lord, or is David blessed the Lord? How? In the presence of all the assembly. In other words, we know David prayed in private, but in other words, his blessing of the Lord was done in public, in front of everybody, speaking good words in front of others should constitute our prayers. He desired that God should not only get praise from his own lips, but that others join him in worship. There's little that encourages and builds up our faith in Christ, like hearing the blessing God from other Christians, hearing blessing of God from other Christians. I don't know if you've experienced this. I wouldn't be able to count the times when I'm struggling on my own to believe God's promises, to see his work in me, and then I hear of a friend who tells me a personal testimony of his work in their lives, and it bolsters my faith. Have you had that? Much is said about the friendship between David and his friend Jonathan, but perhaps the best example of what made their relationship so special is found in 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 and 16. So David, at this point, is not king yet. He's still fleeing for his life from Jonathan's father, Saul, it says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Now, just imagine, uh, that, that David, is, David is probably exhausted. He's running for his life. And then it says, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. David's in great distress, and Jonathan comes, and he strengthens his hand in God. He speaks truth. He blesses God to David and strengthens David's hand. Intentionally speaking good words about God and to God, to one another and with one another should characterize our conversations, our prayers as Christians. Now, that's the description of David's prayer. It's a blessing. It's a praise. It's a doxology. We could use all of those terms, a blessing of praise. Now in verse 11, we see David, the content of that blessing. And what he does here is he is ascribing to God everything he's worthy of. Ascribing to God everything he's worthy of. Notice that first word, yours, yours, thine, the King James says. We, we need to not quickly skip past that word. So David here ascribes ownership, full right of everything he has and everything he could potentially claim to God. And in particular, the things he goes on to mention, if you notice, are things that any earthly ruler or king would claim, like this. The greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, the kingdom, 
Those are all things that David would be inclined to claim as a king who had had victory. Yet he says, they are yours, O Lord. They all belong to God. And then he says, following that list, he says, why? For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. That's his reason. David acknowledges everything belongs to God. So it's a necessary step, brothers and sisters, in blessing God that we first acknowledge everything we have, everything we are, everything we have accomplished, everything we own is his, his gift to us. We're so prone, aren't we, to take credit for things. Things like the money we make, the projects we accomplish, the things we're good at, the children we raise, but all that is good is the Lord's. It all belongs to him and we are to regularly return it all to him and acknowledge that it's his. This is what we do when we pray at the end of the Lord's prayer. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. In fact, again, all three of those things are mentioned here, but we'll, we'll mention them in turn as we come to them, along with several other things, all of which are important. So let's go briefly through these things. The first thing David says is yours is the greatness. The greatness. This has to do with impressiveness or importance. People were probably impressed with David and his victories and, and everything he had accomplished. But David is impressed with God. Psalm 145, we actually read this earlier. It's like Dan had planned this, but I promise we didn't talk. Great is the Lord. This is a Psalm of David. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. David is impressed with God. We as little puny human beings, we can only begin to scratch the surface of God's greatness. God's being, his plans, his design, his creation. And the little bit that we are able to scratch, we can only scratch because he's revealed it to us. He showed it to us. David prays in another place, 2 Samuel 7. He prays this, because of your promise and according to your own heart, He's talking to God. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. His is the greatness. When we pray yours is the greatness, we remember that what we think of in this world oftentimes as great isn't really that great. And anything that is great is great because God has made it great. And it should cause us to reflect on his greatness, his purposes, his plan of salvation. Those are the things that are truly great. Then David prays, yours is the power. Yours is the power. If a king has anything, he has power, right? Power over his people to make laws, to coerce them to do what he wants them to do, to declare war, to, to make taxes and take their wealth. But David recognizes that whatever power he has, it's God alone who has true and ultimate power, infinite power. He realizes his own heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. God alone has power to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and with whomever he wants. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Infinite power. He asks no permission. He asks no forgiveness. 
He does all that he pleases. He doesn't have to fight his way to the top because he's already there. When we come to God in prayer and ascribe to him all the power, there's many helpful things, practical things for us to remember. As we say, yours is the power, thine is the power, such as we remember that it was his power that worked in us to save us through the gospel of Christ. And it is his power that continues to sanctify us through the gospel of Christ. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His power that drew us to himself. It's his power that keeps us in his hand in such a way that nothing can snatch us away. His power alone. It's his power that allows him to be able to work everything for the good of those who love him. And perhaps most pertinently, it's his divine power that, that is, allows him to be able to answer our prayers. If he didn't have absolute power, then why would we ask him to do anything? But we ask him because we believe that he can do whatever he pleases. He answers to no one but himself. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we should ask him for marvelous acts of power. We should ask him for the salvation of sinners apart from his help. We, shouldn't, we could not ask for anyone to be saved. But because he is all powerful, even the person you think has no hope has hope because God will do as he pleases. He has power to make us more holy. We know that we have no power in ourselves, don't we? But his is the power. Power to build his church when the forces of evil seem like they will overwhelm his church? No. He promised that he will build his church and he has absolute power to do so. Power to keep us from temptation and evil like we prayed last week. Thine is the power. David goes on and tells God, yours is the glory. Here's another one that is from the ending on the Lord's prayer. Yours is the glory. Glory is one of those beautiful biblical words that we can only start to plumb the depths of. We, we will we'll be exploring glory for eternity. But glory here refers to splendor and beauty. And specifically when it comes to God, the dazzling resplendent beauty of the combination of his perfect attributes. But beauty is what is primarily thought of here. Psalm 96.6, it's translated as beauty. It says, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty, that's the same word. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. God's glory is, among other things, beauty. But it's a beauty that is at the same time for sinners, wonderful and terrible. It strikes terror into the heart of the wicked. It's a beauty that we cannot gaze on. It's God's glory that caused Mount Sinai to be wrapped in smoke and thick darkness and for there to be an earthquake that caused all the people to tremble in fear and plead that God not speak to them directly. It's God's glory that caused the prophet Isaiah, the shepherds at the time of Jesus' birth, Jesus' disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration to fall on their faces in fear in terror. These are glimpses that God gave of his glory. But scripture teaches us God's glory is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only son from the father. And this is how, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, two things that when it comes to sinful human beings could not be reconcilable. Truth, 
Justice, righteousness on the one hand, and grace, favor to the undeserving on the other hand. In Jesus Christ and him only are those two things brought together for our good. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and therefore we have seen God's glory in him. Fully God and fully man, completely innocent, and then put to death as a substitute for the sins of the guilty. Rising again to take away the sins of the world. So when we pray, thine is the glory on this side of the cross, we rejoice in Jesus Christ and the glory of his saving gospel that we will be celebrating for all eternity. We're saying with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness as shown to us in Jesus Christ. David gave God glory for the worship that the people of Israel had just presented before him and their generosity towards God. And so among other things, what we give God glory for is any good in us. Any good in us, any good that he's done in us, anywhere where we have reflected his glory, any progress we have made in holiness, it's his and he deserves all glory. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with this now famous question. It's been famous for quite some time. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to glorify God. So when we pray, thine is the glory, we're beginning to live out our chief end. The purpose for our existence, to worship God and give, his, give him glory. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, yours is the victory. Now this is an interesting word in the Hebrew, much richer than our English word for victory. It carries the idea of permanence. In fact, from what I remember as I studied, this is the only place it's actually translated victory. The idea is permanence of this word, forever. Most of the places it's translated, it's translated forever. So we could literally say, yours is the foreverness. Here's the idea. Because God alone is eternal, is permanent, is forever, he always has the last word. And therefore, he always has the victory. The victory will be his. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and he will win, brothers and sisters. He will win. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 says this. He, that is Jesus Christ, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All his enemies. That means he has victory over Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He destroyed him. He promises the believers in Rome that they will soon crush the serpent's head under their feet, Satan's head under their feet. And speaking of death, Jesus has also won victory over death and the cause of death, which is sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, some of the most beautiful verses about Christ's sure victory over sin and death. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable, so he's talking about the resurrection when we are raised in glorious bodies, when Christ comes again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, he will have complete and final victory, brothers and sisters, over every enemy and over every person that has not bowed the knee to him. And by the way, when it, it comes very personal to us because we were God's enemies. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So in our case, he conquered us by his love. He conquered us by changing our wills, by wooing us to himself, by his love. That's the mercy of God towards us, brothers and sisters. No thanks to us, not to our name, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. But he will come again. And I don't know of many passages more terrifying for those who are still his enemies and who have still refused to bow the knee to him than Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This is John's vision of the end. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's Jesus Christ. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will conquer. He will conquer. Certainly, brothers and sisters, his is the victory. And if you have not been conquered by him, submit yourself today. Lay down your weapons. If you're not trusting in his sacrifice for your sin, you will go to hell, the lake of fire, to begin paying off a debt you can never pay. And therefore, it is eternal. His will be the victory. Then David says, yours is the majesty. This is the concept of grandeur and, and awesomeness. God's majesty is far beyond our imagination. But he's given us many majestic things to look at in creation and marvel at and, let ref and help us to reflect on his majesty. And we see this in the Psalms all the time, don't we? The things that we see in creation that are majestic, those swelling waves of a stormy ocean. The breathtaking beauty of a mountaintop view. The strength and the terrifying nature of a hurricane. 
As Christians, we should reflect on creation and let it, let it stir up our thoughts of the majesty of God. I'm sorry, this is what I meant to read. This is what I, was, what I referenced earlier that we read during worship this morning. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Both Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards share in their own writings how they loved to go out and marvel at thunderstorms because of the way it lifted their hearts to think of God's majesty. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. Men are by nature afraid of the heavens. The superstitious dread the signs in the sky. And even the bravest spirit is sometimes made to tremble when the firmament is ablaze with lightning. And the pealing thunder seems to make the vast concave of heaven to tremble and reverberate. How many of you experienced that when there's that ear-splitting crack that nobody expects? And he goes on, But I always feel ashamed to keep indoors when the thunder shakes the solid earth and the lightnings flash like arrows from the sky, then God is abroad. And I love to walk out in some wide space and to look up and mark the opening gates of heaven as the lightning reveals far beyond enables me to gaze into the unseen. I like to hear my heavenly father's voice in the thunder. In an age of mass entertainment and cynicism, Let's not forget to marvel at the majesty of God in creation and let it cause us to rise in faith and in confidence in his power. So then, as I mentioned earlier, David gives the reason after listing all these things for ascribing all of this to God. Namely, it's all his. And then he finishes by ascribing one more thing to God. He says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord and you are exalted as head above all. Now, it's likely David saved this one for last and put it in his own category because who was he? He was the king. And so he saves this for last and says, this is yours. All that I have, all that I'm king over, it's yours. I'm reminded of Philippians 2, 9 through 11, when it says, he is exalted. You are exalted as head above all. Well, God has highly exalted Jesus and give, bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David was a king, he had a kingdom and yet here he willingly surrenders all rights and authority to God, the true and sovereign king. Rulers on earth do and always have tended to forget the limits of their authority. They forget that they have no authority but what is given them by God. But it's not just there. Our culture teaches us that we are kings of ourselves, doesn't it? Self is exalted as the supreme ruler. We're taught to not submit to anyone but ourselves. Our desires, our goals, our plans, whatever we perceive our identity to be. These ought to reign as supreme, and we're taught that anything that would oppose us or go against what we want to do is wrong. 
Even as Christians, we can lose sight of the fact that the kingdom belongs to the king. Can't we? We easily become focused on the things we're doing, our projects, our jobs, our, even our families. Good things, all good things, but we lose sight of the, of the kingdom of which we are a part. And that our first and foremost priority is the kingdom of God. Our great commission to make disciples of all nations. So earlier in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, you remember Tim's sermon, thy kingdom come. That was our prayer. That was what we asked for. That Christ's rule and reign would spread throughout the earth. And so now when we pray, thine is the kingdom, we're remembering that Christ indeed is already the king. And he's our king. And he has authority over us. He has the right to tell us how to think, how to act, how to speak, and yes, how to feel. And we will submit ourselves to that authority. In fact, even as we pray to him as our king, we are worshiping and therefore his kingdom is coming as we pray. Phil Riken put it this way, as we pray, his kingdom comes because his worship is established in our heart. I put that last part on that. That's not his quote. His quote continues. For when we pray, thine is the kingdom, God establishes his rule over our prayers and thus over our hearts. Thine is the kingdom. Now let's bring it back together here as we close. Thine is the greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, and kingdom. David prays. We pray at the end of the Lord's prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. I hope as a result of looking at this passage together this morning, at very least, it's clear why it's helpful to end our prayers this way. Because it turns our thoughts again from ourselves back to God where we started speaking a good word about God. Praise is a savory seasoning to all of our prayers. And we should not offer a prayer apart from praise. It gives God glory and it fills us with hope as we remember that he's worthy of our prayers and our praise. Even as we ask him for things, we remember that he's already doing things. He's already doing the things that we have asked him to do. Because again, if we're modeling our prayer after this prayer in Matthew 6, these are all things that are his will. And so as we ask, we, already, we affirm that he's already doing. And we remember, excuse me, we remember that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And specifically with the Lord's Prayer, I want to just mention this as we close. The kingdom, the power, and the glory, these three are not chosen accidentally of that list of six that we just studied. They reflect the first three things that we asked for in prayer. I don't know if you ever noticed this. We prayed that, first of all, that the Lord's name would be hallowed, and now we pray, thine is the glory. We remember that he has glorified his name, and he will glorify it again. We prayed, thy kingdom come, and now by saying, thine is the kingdom, we remember that his kingdom has already begun, and he's reigning now as king, and we're submitting ourselves to that authority. And he will continue to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. We prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we pray, thine is the power to do all thy will. Yours is the power even to answer this simple prayer of mine. Brothers and sisters, let's pray to this God to whom be all the glory.
Yours, O Lord, is indeed the greatness. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory and the victory and the majesty and the kingdom. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours, O Lord. Not a single thing belongs to us that is not first yours. That includes the words that we speak. And so, Lord, let our mouths be full of worship. Let our mouths be full of thanks and of praise to you, even as sometimes we pray for things that break our hearts. Let us, like Job, remember that your name is blessed and is to be blessed, even in the worst of circumstances. It is your power. It is your might that gives us hope. And so, Lord, let us be a people of hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.